I want you to open your Bible to the book of John chapter 11. We made mention of this just a moment ago. While you're looking for John 11, let me remind you where we've been in scripture together over the last several weeks. We've been looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We've been going back and looking at the dedication of the temple in the Old Testament. And most of you know this, but we're doing that because that's what we're headed towards here in this church as well. We've got dedication weekend coming up. It's just a few weeks away. We started talking about this a while back and it's amazing how quickly these things get here and it's, uh, it's almost on us. So we're going to talk some more about that today. But uh, God takes these things seriously and it's not just natural buildings that need to be dedicated. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. That's what this body is. And God has chosen to indwell that temple. He chose to put himself in there. And this is difficult for the natural mind to wrap around, but you and I, according to the scriptures, have been filled with all the fullness of God. And sometimes you just look at yourself and go, how do you fit in that? All the fullness of God? Well, he's God, okay? Sometimes that's just the answer that you need. He's God and he can do it. But we're not just talking about dedicating a natural place. We're talking about the dedication of our own lives and the temple to him. And the way he responds to dedication, he responded to it in the Old Testament. He responds to it the same way today. And we read it in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, say this with me. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. You need to be saying those words on a daily basis. Not just when we're in here together, on a daily basis. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Can we say it together again? The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. We have kind of a fascination with things that have been around a long time. We're not so used to it here in the United States. We're a relatively young country, a couple of hundred years old plus. But when you get outside of this part of the world and into other places, particularly Europe and Africa, Sarah and I have been to some places and you're standing there looking at something, it's not something that's been there 200 years, not something that's been there 500 years, looking at something that was put there a thousand years ago. And people will line up around that thing, whatever it is, and they marvel at it and they ooh and they ah for one reason, it's old. <laughs> and they like how old it is. And what they're saying and what really is so captivating about it is it's been there so long. And much of these things that have stood for so long, we call it standing the test of time. But what we mean by that is 
everything that's gone on around it. And in some of these places, these monuments or these structures or whatever it is, they, they have endured wars that were fought around them. They've endured storms of every kind, natural or man-made. I mean, these things have had total destruction happen all around them. And when the dust settled, it was still standing there. That's what people are so captivated by when they go and look at this and marvel at it. And when God talks about the part of him that lasts forever, is he talking about his anger? No, you know, from the scripture, his anger's but for a moment. It lasts just about that long. Is he talking about judgment? No. When he's talking about the part of him that just keeps going and going and going and going, what's he talking about? His mercy. It's his loving kindness and his tender mercy that endures forever. Endurance is an amazing thing. It's such a part of fitness. You know, when people start, they, they get it in their mind, I got to work out, I got to get stronger. They usually think first in terms of power, the ability to, to push more or lift more, be stronger physically, or at least look stronger, right? Well, a big part of fitness that a lot of times people don't even realize is endurance. Because it's great if you're strong and you can lift a lot, but if you can only do that for a couple of minutes at a time, that's not really doing you as much good as the ability to endure, endure. When Justice was little, he probably started this when he, I mean, two years old, three years old. We have this on video. We'd, we'd put a video camera in his face and say, what's your name? And every time he'd say, my name is Justice James Pearson's fastest boy in the world. <laughs> that, that was his name. Justice James Pearson's fastest boy in the world. And that kind of stuck with him for a long time. And even to this day, he doesn't introduce himself that way anymore. He's 10 years old, but he's still pretty into things that go fast. And uh, I noticed a few years ago, he was talking so much about speed, speed, daddy, I want to go fast, want to go fast, want to go fast. And I got it in my heart, I guess it was from the Lord. I don't know. We sat in bed one night and I, I started Googling uh, endurance runners. Now, if I were to ask you, who's the fastest guy? People all over the world know. I think I might've heard it over here. Somebody say Usain Bolt or these, these guys that run in the Olympics that break all kinds of records and they're fast, man. They are fast for a few seconds, but everybody loves speed. Man, people love to watch things that go fast. They love to ride in things that go fast. But how many of you in here are, I mean, really, really big Dean Carnazes fans? Anybody? Dean Carnazes. Anybody got a Dean Carnazes t-shirt? You go to those Dean Carnazes track meet. Well, listen, let me, you don't know who that is, but let me tell you who he is. I didn't know this either until I was laying in bed that night, putting justice to bed, looking this stuff up. This guy... Uh, man, I wish I could remember all of his facts. I wasn't planning on going this way, but this guy's an endurance runner. If I'm not mistaken, he ran seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Consecutive. Seven marathons in seven days 
on seven continents. I don't even know how it's humanly possible, but he did it. This guy ran, ran from Disneyland in California to New York City. Ran. And I don't remember the amount of time he did it in. It took a while. Uh, his, I think his longest distance of running without stopping, if I'm not mistaken, was somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 and something miles. It's amazing, isn't it? But nobody knows who this is. I mean, unless you're really in that world. No offense, Dean. But I mean, unless you're really in that world, endurance isn't really what grabs people's attention. But it gets God's. It gets God's because it's so a part of who he is. His mercy endures. For how long? forever. I mean, in his mercy, just the stuff you've thrown at it, just the stuff I've done and thrown at his mercy and it's still standing there. The wars that have raged around his mercy, mankind as a whole turned our back and refused it. And it's still standing there. His mercy endures forever which means it's going to be there when you get up in the morning and it'll be there when you go to bed and it'll be there the next day. And every time the sun comes up, it'll be new. His mercy endures. You need to be saying this every day. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now, when they dedicated this temple, you see this here in the scripture, the fire fell from heaven. The glory of God filled the temple. And you see the way the people bowed down and worshiped in first Samuel chapter two, verse 30. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The last part of that verse says the Lord is speaking. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. This same word translated honor is the same word often translated glory, Glory and honor, they're the same thing because you're talking about something that's valuable. You're talking about something that's weighty. And that's why we talked about what you give weight to, what you put value on, what you put value in. And what God is saying here is those who put value on me, I put value on them. But those who despise me, he said, will be lightly esteemed. Don't, don't let this paint a picture in your mind of God just sort of standing over in a corner saying, well, look, if, if you do this for me, I'll do it for you. But if you're not going to do it for me, I'm not. That, that's, that's such a, it's a childish way of thinking. And that's not God. You have to think about it like this. He desires to do it for you, but he can't where there's not an open door. He desires to take you and your life and your family and everything that concerns you. He wants to give weight to it. He wants to put value on it. He wants to be involved in every part of it, but he can't until you open that door. What did he say? Behold, I stand at the door. And if you don't open it in five seconds, I'm going to beat this thing down. I'm coming in whether you like it or not. Is that what he said? No, I stand at the door and I knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens it up, he's not busting the door down. 
And you can tell we've had some really wrong teaching about this. God's God and he's going to do whatever he wants to do. And it sounds like, it sounds like you're talking real big about him, but it's not the truth. He is God and I believe his plan will be accomplished in this earth. But whether or not you get used in it is totally up to you. Whether or not he's able to do with you what he's called and created you to do and to be, that's up to you. He's not going to beat this door down. He'll stand there, he'll knock. And if you're wise, when you hear his voice, you'll open the door. And that's what we've been talking about. That's what honor does. It opens the door. It gives him access to come in. So those, he said, who honor me, I'll honor them. Those who value me, I'll value them. Those who give me glory, I'll give you glory. I'll pour glory out in your life. I'll put glory on display in your family. Man, is anybody else interested in this? We need this. Thank you, Lord. In uh, 2 Corinthians, the New Testament, chapter 4, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though, this is verse 16, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Does that sound like what he said in 1 Samuel 2? You despise him, you'll be lightly esteemed. Once again, he's comparing things with different weights, different values. One thing is heavy and it, weigh, and it, it weighs a lot and it's valuable. Another thing, if it's light, he said lightly esteemed, not valued. And that's what it is to despise God. There are people all over the planet that despise God. And if you told them that's what they were doing, they'd say, no, I don't. I believe there's a God. But despising him doesn't mean necessarily that you hate him or even that you're against him. It just means you don't put value where he puts value. You don't honor the things that he calls honorable. And I'm so thankful that this room is full this morning of people who found him and his things and his word valuable enough to roll out the bed. Not everybody did that. Now, listen, I'm not going to be one of those pastors who preaches to the people who aren't here. Okay. I ain't doing that. You're here. I'm going to talk to you. I'm thankful for you, but I don't know if you realized it or not. What you did just in that simple act was you put value on him. You honored him. You could have been doing something else. You could have been somewhere else, but you put value on him and his things. What does that do? It opens the door. Now he can put value on you and on your things. Amen. And we do this in so many different ways. Time in his word, walking in love. When we see something in the word and we hadn't been thinking that way, we change the way we think. When we see something in the word and we haven't been doing that, we change what we're doing. What are you doing? You're honoring it, giving weight to the word. And he's so thrilled because that's an open door in your life for him to go to work. Man, I got to keep moving. He said, we don't lose heart. Our outward man's perishing. The inward man's being renewed day by day. Even our light or for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Comes back down to what are you looking at? What are you looking at all day? Are you looking at what's against you? Or are you looking at the one that's for you? Because the more you look at the problem, the more weight you give to it. And people don't realize it, 
but many, many people are problem worshipers. They may not stand up and sing songs to the problem, but the attention they give to it, the thought they dedicate to it, the affection they give to it, and all the talking they're doing about the problem, that's worshiping the problem. And what you don't realize is you're giving weight to it, giving weight to it, giving weight to it. And that little thing started out so small, but you have added so much weight to it that now it's all you can see and it outweighs everything in your life. Meanwhile, you've got God in all his glory over here going, give me a little weight and I'll outweigh that thing in a second. Give me a little attention. Give my word a little affection. Give my promise a little bit of faith and I'll outweigh that. That's nothing, man. That's nothing. What are you looking at? Hmm? What are you looking at? You looking at me. What are you looking at? You have to find out. You have to ask, am I looking too long at this? It's not that you need to pretend it's not there. That's not what faith's about. But you don't have to stare at it all day long. You don't have to live your life with a death grip on the calculator trying to make things work financially. Quit looking at it. You know it doesn't work. <laughs> Quit looking at that and get your eyes over here on the one who will provide for what you need. What are you giving weight to? I'm not trying to oversimplify these things, but really it, it is pretty simple. What are you giving weight to? What are you looking at? Um, John chapter 11, did you find that? Good, that was like 20 minutes ago, so. John chapter 11, we looked at this last week and I want to build on it again today. I mentioned it earlier, Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus, his sisters, uh, Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters were there. And Jesus, we won't go back over the whole story again, but in verse 23, Jesus said to Martha, he said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, verse 24, he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Now notice this, he who believes in me. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Can you hear where Jesus is putting the emphasis? Now, you know, and I know what he's got in his heart and what he wants to do, what he's capable of doing for this family and for this dead man and for his relatives that remain. But evidently, Martha's faith has something to do with that. Or else why would he keep asking her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Just in what, two verses, he says the word believe three different times. I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There is, there is a school of thought and doctrine that would tell you, regardless of what you do, Jesus is going to do what he wants to do. God's going to do whatever he wants to do because he's God. And we've talked about this. If that was the case, why is Jesus endeavoring to get faith out of this woman? That's what he's always after. That's what he's always looking for. Show me some faith. Give me some access to your stuff. How do you do that? Faith has something to do with it. 
It's not just that God willed to raise this man. It wasn't even just that God was, quote unquote, able to raise this man. That ability would have only been limited by an absence of faith. How many times did he tell people, your faith has made you whole? Never did he say it was the sovereignty of God that did it. It was your faith, your faith in his love, your faith in his power, your faith in his will. But your faith is what gives you access to him. And then you skip down a few verses and he had said, roll away the stone, take away the stone. And Martha said to him, uh, he's dead. He's been dead four days. He stinks. And Jesus turned to her in verse 40 and said again, did I not say to you? How quickly we forget these things, don't we? It wasn't written in chapter and verse. These, these things played out over moments in time. And just a few moments ago, Jesus was like, if you believe, if you believe, do you believe? And then finally he says, roll away the stone. She said, yeah, he stinks. He's like, did I not just, did we just talk, just five minutes ago, Martha, were you, you were standing right there. But it shows you how easily it can slip. It shows you how easily you can slip back into something else. Let me get ahead of myself here for a second. But this life of faith that you and I live is a constant contest between what you see and what you believe. Can I say that to you again? This life of faith is a constant contest. What's that mean? It's always going on. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, fight the good fight of faith. One translation said, be constantly engaging in the contest of faith. In other words, in other words you, you, you don't take a break from this. You don't call a timeout. Be constantly engaged in it. Why? Because this life of faith is a constant contest between what you see and what you believe. Or you could say it like this, between what you see and what you're believing to see. Because that's what he said to her. Did I not just say to you that if you would believe, I want you to read this last part out loud with me, you would see the glory of God. Now, if he just came and was going to raise Lazarus, no matter what anybody else did, then there's no reason for any of this conversation. There's no reason for him to talk to her about faith because it wouldn't matter. He's God, God in the flesh, and he's going to do what God wants done. Well, is he? Can he? It has something to do with you connecting to him in faith. And faith goes hand in hand with honor. If you want to see the manifestation of the glory of God in your life, and let me help you, you do. You do want to see that. Then you're going to have to open the door to it. And it's honor that opens that door. Martha and her sister Mary put themselves, themselves at the feet of Jesus, welcomed him into their home, right? We talked about all this. He saw in her heart what she would do in the time to come. All of it opened up a door of access for him, but it was all faith. As we get ready for dedication and then every day, week, month, and year to follow that, what we need to understand 
is that our faith is involved. We've been talking for weeks now about the manifestation of the glory of God. And again, I got to say it to you. I'm not just talking about his glory in this house. I'm talking about his glory in your house, in my house. And whatever's going on in this house, that's what we want going on in our houses, right? Your house and mine. But it will not happen apart from faith. Do you believe this? How many times did he say it? Do you believe it? Do you? I got to know, Martha. I'm not just taking a survey here. I need to know. Do I have access to you? Do I have access to do this in your life and in your family? Do you believe this? Didn't I tell you if you'd believe it, you would see it. Faith is involved in this. And what I need for you and I to understand today and moving forward is that faith is more than just saying, yes, I believe that, or even, yes, we want to see the glory of God. That's a good thing. and It's a good thing to say, but there's more to it. And I, I want to build on that today. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. This is a great faith chapter, this hall of faith and every person listed in it, man, if you want to know what faith looks like, looks like and sounds like and acts like, you can read through this. I want to read just a few verses to you. Just start in verse one of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that you don't see, not seen. The NIV says faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. What we do not see. Like I told you a minute ago, your life of faith is this constant contest between what you do see and what you believe. And what I'm talking about when I say believe, I'm talking about what you don't see. And people wrongly say that faith or the life of faith is about living and believing in the unknown. The, the unknown. Man, you sound smart when you say it, don't you? The unknown. But it has nothing to do with the unknown. Faith is not about the unknown. It's just about the unseen. And you can tell people like, well, what's the difference? Oh, it's huge. man! It's, it's huge. But the reason they're so ignorant of it is because they're, they are not aware and have no idea that there's this whole other realm that is real, if not more real than the one you're in, more real than what you can see, taste, touch, smell. And I mean, anything that's, that's just in this five sense realm, there is something beyond that. It's called the realm of the spirit. And that's where faith is. That's where faith operates. It's not unknown. God is not unknown. He's just unseen. How do you know that? I know him. I know him. We were just talking earlier. I mean, anybody else in here, you know him. Your faith's not about unknown. It's just about the unseen. So he said, faith is the substance 
of the things we hope for. And there's some confusion about this too. People are confused about, okay, so what comes first? Is it faith faith first or hope first? Well, you got to have hope before you have faith. Now listen to me. The scripture said faith is the substance. If you study that out, it literally means the foundation. It's what you're standing on. Faith is the substance of what you hope for. And there's a lot of confusion about that too. People have no idea what hope actually is. And if, if you say to somebody, you're doing this, you go in there, well, I hope so. I hope so. That has nothing to do with what Bible hope really is. Most people use the word hope and it's wish, desire. I really, 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 really want to. But it has nothing to do with any of those things. Hope is expectation. Hope is a confident expectation of what is to come. Now it has It has only to do with the unseen. There are places in the scripture that talk to us about you don't hope for what you see because if you see it, it's not hope. It's only hope while it's yet unseen. And I got to tell you, that's God's favorite part. I know your favorite part. My favorite part is the sight, right? When faith becomes sight. Ooh, we like the sight part. That's exciting. Ah, it happened. I'm healed. I'm prosperous. Oh, I got my answer. God's like, well... Okay, but what next? Because his favorite parts this this whole time you spent in faith when you didn't see it and you didn't have it and yet you trusted anyway. Oh, he loves it. It's like you wrapping up presents for your kids two weeks before Christmas and they're sitting under the tree. You know what's in there. But they're looking at it going, oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And they're shaking and they're looking at it and they're so excited because why? It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Christmas day is coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then they open it and they're so excited. Why? Because their faith has become sight. And you're like, well, all right. It's kind of, as parents, right? It's that it, 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 our favorite part was the, the lead up, the build up, the expectation. God loves faith. He loves faith. He loves it when it's yet unseen and still you believe and still you trust. And faith is the foundation that hope springs from. Think about it like this. How could you expect anything good if you didn't have faith in a good God? So it's got to happen in that order. My faith in him produces my expectation for good things, good things. Now, right on the other hand, you can build your life on this other platform, a platform called fear. And fear also produces an expectation called worry. What is worry? It's hope turned all inside out and backwards. Hope is the expectation of good. Worry is the expectation of bad. And when you build your life on the platform of fear, it will yield this constant expectation of worry, worry about tomorrow, worry about the future. You remember what Jesus said about it? Stop it. Stop worrying about tomorrow. What was he saying? Through worry, tomorrow's unseen. It's not here yet, but what you're actually doing is worry is reaching out into the future, grabbing a hold of the trouble that's still unseen and bringing it into the here and now. That's how bad worry is for you. But right on the other hand, 
You know what hope has the ability to do? The life built on the platform of faith, yielding this expectation called hope. I got faith in a good God. I'm expecting good things. I got faith in a healer. I'm expecting healing. I got faith in my provider. I'm expecting provision. You notice what's happening here? I got faith in, in the one who has become unto me wisdom. I am expecting to be filled with wisdom. I got faith in his favor. I am expecting favor. You see what's happening? Faith in him is producing that expectation. But what hope has the ability to do, same thing worry can do. Reach out into the future. Grab a hold of what's good and bring it into the here and now. Faith is the substance of what we're expecting, what we're hoping for. He said in verse two, by it the elders obtained, oh man, I gotta be done. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So here again, he's talking about the difference between the seen and the unseen. And people read this and say, God made the world out of nothing. Wrong. He just made it out of stuff you couldn't see. Now look at verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You remember this, right? The book of Genesis. Abel made an offering. He brought that spotless lamb. Cain made an offering and he brought the fruit of the ground. And I think, I don't know, I was thinking back when I was a kid hearing about this and I always thought there was something wrong with Cain's offering. But I went back and looked at it and there's really no mention of like rotten fruit or sour grapes or something like that. It just says he was a tiller of the ground, so he brought the fruit, fruit of the ground. Abel was a herdsman, he brought a lamb. But we know that God accepted Abel's and not Cain's. If you go back and look at the Genesis account, there's not a whole lot, in my estimation anyway, of information as to why, but you see it all right here. What made Abel's offering acceptable? Read it again, by faith. By faith, God is not obligated to accept every offering. Which ones does he accept? Ones made by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God, listen, a more excellent sacrifice. That's what makes your offering excellent. It's not an amount. Are you listening to me? It's not the amount it's not how many zeros you got on that check. It's not any of that. It's the faith in it. It's the love in it. It's the confidence. And that makes it acceptable to him. This goes on by faith. Verse five, Enoch was taken away so that he didn't see death. If you go back to Genesis and look at his life, all you know about Enoch is he walked with God. That's all. That's it. That's everything we know about him. He walked with God. And we know that he walked with God for 300 years. Somebody say, that's a long walk. That is a long walk. And evidently God so loved that, loved his time with him, loved his walk with Enoch that he put him right here in Hebrews 11 because it took faith to walk that long with God. It took faith to walk 
for 300 years and we have nothing in scripture that tells us he ever saw God in the flesh. This God was not unknown to him. He was just what? Unseen. What I want to get to today in the 90 seconds I have left, Lord help me, is verse seven. We could talk, oh, I want to talk so much about all this. <laughs> I mean, I can't skip verse six, please. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must, must what? Believe. Must what? Believe. Come on, must what? Believe. Does this sound like Jesus talking to Martha? Do you believe this? This is what he's looking for. This is what he's requiring. He who comes to God must believe that he is. That's a good place to start. God, I believe you is. I believe you is. What are you doing? Acknowledging his existence. He's asking you to believe that. He's requiring that of you. And the only other thing he's requiring you to believe to come to him is believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now here's, let me just add this to you and find a way to wrap this up. In verse seven, it says, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things, what? Not yet seen. Not yet seen. Noah. Anybody remember Noah? Bible scholars out there, you remember Noah? You remember what happened with Noah? God talked to him and said, flood's coming, right? Rain's coming. And Noah said, cool. One question, what's rain? You know, they'd never seen this. The, the, the skies had never opened up before. The, the earth was watered from a mist, the Bible says, that came up from the ground. Man, this place was perfect. And then the Lord tells him about things that are coming. Things not yet seen. And you got to think of it from his perspective. Not only is it not raining right now, <laughs> it never has before. So to try to wrap your mind around the concept of a flood. But God warned him about these things. It says being warned by God of things not yet seen. Listen to this. Moved with godly fear. Godly fear. What is that? That's honor. That's reverence. Now, I guess God could have explained to him, here's what's going to happen. Flood's coming. I'm wiping this whole thing out. You know, and he went into some of that detail. What I'm saying is there would have been plenty of natural fear to motivate somebody to get to work on the boat. But it wasn't natural fear. It wasn't the fear of death. It wasn't the fear of the judgment. He was moved with a godly fear. One translation, I think the Amplified Bible says, he diligently and reverently prepared the ark. Okay. Listen to those words. Moved with godly fear, he prepared an ark. Moved with godly fear, what did he do? Prepared. prepared. How did he do that? By faith. Here's what I'm trying to say to you today. And I had so many more really cool scriptures to share with you. Can you come back next week? Is anybody? <laughs> Faith yields hope. Hope is an expectation. But if you are in expectation, the very next thing you do, you listening to me? 
the very next thing you do is begin your preparation. Expectation produces preparation. All you have to do is ask any mama who's ever been pregnant. Hmm? Am I telling the truth, ladies? Hey, great news. You're going to have a baby. What goes to work right then? Expectation. We're expecting. We're expecting. It's even the word we use, right? To describe it. She's expecting. She's expecting. She's expecting. And at some point, at some point in time, that expectation begins to produce a preparation. I was thinking back recently on, on Sarah when she was pregnant with Jesse. She was uh, eight months, eight plus months pregnant. I had to go do church that night at mom and dad's church. I went and spoke in service. When I got back to the house, that pregnant woman was in the entryway of our house with a dresser turned on its side, paintbrush in hand. You know, she's just standing there painting this thing. Why? Because baby girl's going to be here like any minute and we want her to like her room when she comes in. And, but that preparation starts kicking in, doesn't it? You start preparing. Now with God, we want the expectation and the time between when we first start expecting and then the time we see it. Oh man, we wish that was so much shorter. But do you realize it's the grace of God that gives us time to do what? Get ready. Get ready. Now, when you hear those words in church, oh, come on, get ready. The glory is coming. I said, get ready, get ready. Come on, everybody, get ready, get ready, get ready. Oh, and everybody, oh, we're ready, Lord. Send the glory. We're ready, Lord. Send the glory. And God's going, no, I said, get ready. Which means what? You're not ready. So in his goodness and in his grace, there is time to prepare. Prepare. Preparation. Now think about it. Aren't you glad that you don't find out, quit laughing at me, that you don't find out you're pregnant and like three days later there's a baby? Think about that. From a husband's perspective, I'm so thankful because it took like seven months just to wrap the head around. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby. And I would comfort myself with these words. that billions of people have done this before me. Surely I'm not the dumbest one. Surely I'm not even top 10 of the dumbest that have ever been a daddy. And I would comfort myself with those words and, and the preparation time. And, and it wasn't just getting the room ready. It was getting the head ready and the heart ready, right? Preparation, preparation, faith, prepares. Faith prepares. And sometimes I want to say to people who are complaining about what's going on in life and got problems galore and problems on every hand and pressure at every turn and they're crying about it. You want to say to them, what were you expecting? No, I mean it. Tell me what you were expecting. It's like, well, I wasn't expecting this. Faith is not the, not just trying not to expect something bad. Faith is the expectation of the goodness and the glory of God poured out, poured out on your life every day. 
but there's a preparation for it. Husbands, wives, we need to get to the place in our marriages where we're looking at each other on a regular basis and saying, okay, what are we expecting? What are we expecting God to do? Huh? What are we expecting to see? We're, we're expecting to see the glory, but then when you get to talking about it, the next question is, okay, what are we doing to get ready for it? Guys, put this scripture on the screen for us. For time's sake, I won't make you turn there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll skip to the end of the notes. 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said in verse 20, he said, in a great house, I believe that's what this place is. Anybody believe that with me? Why don't you say it? Legacy church is a great house. He said, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Listen to these words. Some for what? Honor. honor. Some for honor. And then he said, some for dishonor. He said, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified for the master. Now listen, prepared for every good work in a great house. Look up these words and it means a big house, a beautiful house, a rich house. Somebody who owns a house like that, the master of that house, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of vessels, all kinds of tools, all kinds of equipment in that house. But when you're in a great house like that, there are some things that the master never even touches. Somebody else does that. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Somebody, he's got help and the help does that. It's not, when he said some for honor and some for dishonor, it wasn't necessarily saying some that are good and some that are bad. He was talking about how they get used. Let's try it over here. He was talking about the way they get used and who in the house gets to handle them. Now, when you're talking about just natural things in a natural house, you got stuff made out of gold and then you got stuff made out of, he said, wood and clay. And, and, and then he called it the difference between honor and dishonor. Basically, what he's saying is you don't use the gold bowl for the same thing you'd use the you know, wood bowl. They have different uses. And unfortunately for the wood bowl, if he's an actual wood bowl, he's going to always be a wood bowl. But here's where the miracle comes in. You don't have to stay a vessel of dishonor. You can actually become, you can change, you can transform into a vessel of honor that's sanctified. What's that mean? Set apart. It means not everybody gets to handle this. No, this is the nice stuff over here. Sanctified for the master's use. Only the master is the one who gets to put his hands on these. Sanctified for the master's use. And did you hear these words? Prepared for every good work. Prepared. It means made ready. Made ready. Just like one minute. Can we just, I, I, you're so patient. Every week I'm like, gotta get them out earlier. And it's just nearly laughable. When I was 36 years old, Sarah and I went away on vacation in a beautiful place and got up the first morning of vacation. There was a time change, so we woke up early and I'm sitting out on the balcony of this hotel 
looking at the ocean, palm trees swaying. It's beautiful. And I was reading this verse. And I had been looking at it the days leading up to it, but I knew there was something in it that I didn't see and I needed to. So I was sitting there looking at it. And sometimes when I start digging in the scriptures, I'll start looking at different translations. And I found this one, the modern English version, that says it like this, one who cleanses himself from these things will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, fit for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. And I was sitting there, I was 36, almost 37 years old, and I heard these words in my spirit. Jeremy, I want you fit by 40. Fit by 40. Now at the time, I'd, with Jordan and several guys, we'd been working out really hard, doing a pretty intense program and been at it for a little while. So my first thought when he said fit by 40, I foolishly thought physical. You know, yeah, I got to keep working out. And that's a good thing, nothing wrong with it. But then the thought occurred to me, God never deals with you about change from the outside in. It's always from the inside out. And the more I let him talk to me about it, the more I heard him say, Jeremy, something's coming and I need you ready for it. And at first, I don't know, glance at the first listen of that, you get excited. Something's coming. Something's coming. Glory to God. Something's coming. Something's coming. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. But he, when you calm that down and realize what he's saying to you, he's saying, you're not ready. In other words, if I brought it to you right now, you'd either be hurt by it or you'd miss it entirely. It'd go right past you just being not ready for it. And he'd never dealt with me that way before to give me a window of time like that three and a half years or so at that point fit by 40. And I can't say that right away I knew what he was talking about, but the more time went on, the more church began to stir on the inside. And I think it was probably within the next 12 to 18 months, maybe a little more, we began to realize this church thing's around the corner. And it had been stirring in us at that point for years and years and years. And we weren't sure. We didn't know how. We didn't know where. We just knew it was on the inside. And it's like, well, why didn't the Lord just, you know, tell you to go start a church? I don't know. You tell me. Why? We weren't ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. So he gave me in his grace this time to prepare. And once we realized this place was coming, that's what our lives became about. And we began moving towards that. And I look back on it now, there were different things we did in our ministry. We still traveled, but there were things we did at home that began to look more and more like church. We began to think more and more like pastoring. It was the shift and the anointing and the grace on our lives. And it was all part of the preparation coming, headed towards this. And then in what, February of 19, we saw this place online and got excited about it. Actually, Sarah did. And I thought, oh yeah, she's right. That's it. Glory to God. That's our place. And in such a short amount of time, we had an offer on it. They accepted the offer. Uh, we put an offer on this place before we ever saw it in person. And some of you may remember this was just an empty old beat up gymnasium and the, there was no uh, parking lot. The building was in such bad condition, but we got excited. We were expecting. It's like we were growing, right? Something's growing on the inside of us. 
and we're expecting, we're expecting, we're expecting. But what has to be happening as you expect is what? Preparation. Expectation, preparation. Why? Because faith gets ready. And every dollar we poured into this place, which at this point is up over 3 million now in a very short amount of time. What, what was all that? Preparation, preparation. The time we spent building this room out, laying this carpet and painting these walls and buying this equipment and all the work we've done through the other parts of the building, all of it, preparation, preparation, preparation. We didn't have a church. None of y'all went to church here. I didn't even go to church here. Nobody went to church here. But we're expecting something, expecting, expecting. Now, how foolish it would have been to just sit in Texas and go, mm-hmm, glory to God, church is coming. It's coming, it's coming, get ready, get ready, get ready. Coming, it's coming, it's coming. Without preparation, even if it's his plan, even if it's his will, he cannot give it to you. Without that preparation, it keeps the door closed. Why? I told you, it'll hurt you. Either that or it will pass right by you. But if you're expecting, you're preparing. Preparing. And what I wanted to tell you about was the way David prepared for the temple. And how he put in 100,000 talents of gold. That's $194 billion in today's money. He put in another million talents of silver. I think that was another 20-something billion dollars in today's money. And that's what the scripture said. He prepared with all his might. He prepared. What would make somebody do that? What would make Noah start building, moved with godly fear and reverence? I don't know if I've ever seen somebody reverently swing a hammer because you wouldn't be able to tell it on the outside. Oh, but what's on the inside? And as a matter of fact, I take that back because there are men in this congregation I'm looking at right this morning who have been faithful to come to these, uh, this building and walk these halls day after day after day, week after week after week and swing a hammer and saw something in half and put some paint on a wall or put some carpet on the floor, doing it with godly fear and godly reverence. And you know what it did for Noah? Saved his life. And there's no record of conversation between Noah and God where Noah's like, well, what's in it for me? You know what else is interesting to me? We have no idea what profession he had before that. Because at that moment, that's what his life became about. The preparation for the outpouring. Faith gets ready. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. 
Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.